Tonight is about the pro prospects of human life extension. Next month uh, is going to be Ken Dykewald talking about the consequences of human life extension, assuming that Mike and his colleagues are successful in what they're doing. And um, that will not be here. Usually the talks are here the second Fridays of every month. Next month, it's the first Friday, December 3rd, and it's not here. It's over in the Presidio at the Golden Gate Club, which is the old enlisted, uh, uh, enlisted men's club. And I'll be sending out a map if you're on the email address, uh, give your email address to the list if you don't have it already, and you'll get a map to the Golden Gate Club in the Presidio for next month, December 3rd, Ken Dykewald. Uh, we're starting to fill in the schedule for uh, 2005. And uh, something else you can do with these cards that I'll talk about in a minute, if you want to put uh, suggested people you'd like to hear from as part of the seminars about long-term thinking, uh, put, your put a name on there. Uh, the thing I've been surprised to find is that basically everybody we ask says yes. And that's amazing because they're not paid. Uh, we pay their travel and they uh, often come and talk about completely uh, new angles on something they're familiar with. That's, I think, part of the attraction. In February, I'll mention uh, the card shows Roger Kennedy talking about living with limits. Uh, that was a real placeholder of a title. His title of the talk is actually The Political History of North America from 25,000 B.C. to 12,000 A.D. Roger is the former head of the uh, National Museum of American History at the Smithsonian in D.C. and knows of which he's speaking. Jared Diamond is coming in April, and uh, we'll have a piece on uh, time capsule behavior in May and others that are filling in. Laurie Anderson came by the Long Now office today and is planning to do some stuff with Long Now next spring, and we hope to have her come and do one of these talks uh, sometime next year. The question cards, by the way, the, the card which explains about Michael West, so I don't have to, uh, has on the back a blank uh, where a couple of things can happen. You can write a question at any time during the talk uh, or during the Q&A afterwards and send it up. It's very helpful if you put your name on it. And when I or Kevin Kelly read the question, sort through them and pick out the really good ones. If we call out your name, it's helpful to raise your hand or stand up where you are because then when Mike is answering the question, he can direct it at somebody instead of the general uh, populace out there. It's helpful for speakers to actually know who they're answering on a question. And you're also welcome to uh, put your email address on any of these cards if you're not getting uh, the mailings about these talks. Uh, it's often convenient, especially when we have a schedule change like next month. Five or six years ago, I was at a conference called NextMed2 in, I guess we were in Cambridge or Boston, or Boston it was. It was put on by uh, DARPA from the Pentagon, and it was about the screaming, bleeding edge of biomedicine. One of the speakers was Mike West, who at that point had, uh, I think, moved from California, or was about to, to live in Massachusetts. He's now back here in California, and bringing his company uh, advanced cell technology uh, very much to the Bay Area. Proposition 71 has, as you know, passed and is making a very welcome environment for projects like his and for technology like you'll be hearing about tonight.
Well, this was, you know, last century. And uh, the question that many of us had who were looking at biomedicine, is this life extension thing actually serious? And after hearing Mike's talk about work going on with telomerase and embryonic stem cells and tissue regeneration, um, Peter Schwartz from Global Business Network and I were persuaded that, yep, this stuff is really coming. It's coming faster than most people think is coming faster than maybe we're ready for, but it's coming. And uh, so here to talk about it tonight is Michael West. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. It's uh, wonderful to be back in, in San Francisco. Uh, as Stuart mentioned, living in uh, the Boston area, uh, after having lived here, uh, you realize how special of a town this is. And uh, it's, uh, it's really uh, a thrill to interact with some of you as well. Uh, well, what a challenging topic. Uh, how do you live up with uh, such an introduction? Uh, what I'm going to talk about tonight is the, uh, some of the pioneering work, I think, that's been done in the basic biology of aging. I'm going to take us through to uh, briefly describe some of the science. I'm going to talk about human embryonic stem cells and the use of cloning in medicine. Uh, I'm happy for those of you who take issue with these technologies, I'm happy to have some time to debate it. Um, but what I, what I hope to do tonight is just not to continue this debate about embryonic stem cells, which is important, uh, but try to give you a flavor of how I've approached the field. I, I have actually approached the field with an interest in the biology of aging, and more specifically, uh, the biology of mortality and immortality. And that's really the theme I wanted to try to communicate to you tonight for those of you who can think beyond the moment. And so let's do that. This is a photograph uh, that was given to me by my mentor, uh, Dr. Samuel Goldstein, who's no longer with us. He died in 1994. He was a pioneer in the biology of aging. Maybe some of you have heard of the disease progeria, which is a uh, premature aging syndrome. And Dr. Goldstein did a lot of that pioneering work. He also studied the aging of the Galapagos tortoise, these uh, long-lived vertebrates in the Galapagos Islands. Well, Sam gave me this photograph, um, and I feel that it is embedded within this photograph is some very important biology. Of course, it shows a woman, her daughter, and her daughter's daughter, and her daughter's daughter's daughter, all superimposed in one photograph. Keep that in the back of your mind as we progress through the next few slides. Now, what this is is an image of aging. It's a woman in a nursing home her hands folded in her lap. When we think about the biology of aging, however, you know, whatever background you bring to it, you probably think you know what that is. And scientists, gerontologists that study the biology of aging probably bring the bias many of you bring to it 
Uh, I know what that is. That's sun exposure. That's too hot of water when we're washing dishes in decades past. That's wear and tear. That's the aging process. That's like our car wearing out. I'm going to challenge that idea tonight. The, the image that you saw in that photograph of the woman in the nursing home, that image that we're seeing here on the screen is often based on a biological reality that's different than the image itself. And the biology of aging, which we look at and say, I know what that is, that's what happened to my Honda, Honda Civic. Um, that's why we wear out. That's entropy. Is a very common way of thinking about evolution. I just think it's absolutely dead wrong. And I want to try to defend that idea tonight. And really the story, it's, it's a little bit embarrassing for a modern to, to realize, goes back to the very ancient world. Uh, some of us were talking here earlier this evening about the origins of our modern views of mortality and immortality, and it's well known that some of the more powerful myths uh, originated uh, in the very ancient world and were certainly crystallized by the time we see the birth of the ancient Egyptian religions. What is shown here, of course, is a depiction of the ancient myth of Osiris and Isis, and it's a primeval myth, and many people believe that it permeated much of the known world at that time in, in the years following and probably was the basis of the mystery religions and ultimately man, much of this was incorporated into modern, uh, or then now modern Christianity as well. The myth, for those of you who aren't aware, uh, involved Osiris, shown here emerging from the river on the back of a crocodile. But I, I'd have you note, springing from his body was life. Osiris was the personification of a simple concept which the ancient world recognized. And it's really central to the theme I'm trying to communicate tonight. <clears throat> it could be said that Osiris was a personification, a deity that symbolized the immortal renewal of life. As we know, every spring, you know, the, the hyacinths spring forth from the ground. That power of immortal renewal, a cycle of life and death, but behind it an immortal substratum, an immortal cycle, was appreciated by the ancient world. And of course, they looked behind the veil. What is the basis of that immortality? What is the source of it? And of course, like many of us today, they looked to a deity to be the, the source of that immortal renewal of life. It was personified here by, uh, by Osiris. Here standing is Isis, of course, who, when Osiris was cut up in pieces by his enemy, 14 pieces, which, by the way, is the 14 phases that the moon is cut up. She, just like the moon, is bandaged back together in 14 <laughs> steps to make an immortal cycle of life and death. Uh, she, out of her love and compassion for Osiris, bandaged him back up and uh, was responsible for uh, his immortality and being, of course, the judge of the dead. My point is, the origins of a lot of our uh, current thinking about 
mortality and immortality and religion were, were grounded in an appreciation early on that life really is immortal. It's just the individual that passes away. This was developed further in the mystery religions in the Greek world and divided uh, slightly differently into two personalities, Demeter and Dionysus. She, like Osiris, being in this here shown as rising with the grain, rising from the ground, germinating, as Osiris is often shown. Uh, in the same way, Dionysus, be, you know, being born from the vine, and so she represented more the grain, he more the grapes and the wine. The Greeks described this dichotomy as zoe, immortal life, uh, and bios, the individual that passes away. So a biography was the life and death of an individual. Zoe was this immortal substratum. It was the life that the gods enjoyed, of course. Now, let me uh, show you something that many of you may have seen growing up. Um, this is the beginning of a medical drama from the 1960s. Let's see if any of you remember it. Man, woman, earth, death, infinity. Do you remember that, Ben Casey? I used to watch that show, and I, to be honest with you, I, the, 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 you know, the next scene, of course, is Ben Casey bursting in with a gurney, you know, saving a heart attack victim. The stories were interesting, but as a young person, I kept the whole show thinking, what was that? You know? What does that mean? It seems awfully interesting and profound. And... Of course, what it interested me, maybe because I had a scientific bent, was this, this infinity sign. And maybe you think I'm being silly, but of course what this is referring to is the life cycle. The, uh, the sexual reproduction and the life and birth of an individual, but life itself is immortal. And something clicked in my head when I saw that. And... The picture that Sam Goldstein had given me, uh, it clicked in my mind. And here below this photograph, I'm quoting Johannes Mueller, an ancient German naturalist, ancient, did I say that, from the 19th century. And he said, organic bodies are perishable, bios, while life maintains the appearance of immortality in the constant succession of similar individuals, the individuals themselves pass away. Okay, so this is the dichotomy that I was speaking of. Bios, the individual passes away. Zoe, the constant succession of similar individuals. That quote is the opening quote of an essay written in the 1800s by August Weissmann, who is the father of modern heredity. In an essay he wrote on the biology of aging, 
This, as we began to enter the modern era of cell biology, these early scientists recognized that this old idea of zoe and bios, the immortal life cycle, this immortal renewal of life and its mystery, was really to be answered in cells. There were a lineage of cells that connected the generations that were immortal. It was the individual cells of the body that were cast off, that were mortal. And Weissman really crystallized this uh, in, in his writings and defined probably what is the evolutionary origin of aging and death. So Weissman proposed that there were single-celled organisms that had the potential for immortality. And by immortality, but the use of that word, he, of course, did not mean that the cells didn't or couldn't die. He didn't mean that they were incorruptible. If you step on them, they're dead. What he meant was is that, that, that the original primordial cells could proliferate if they were fed well and weren't stepped on, potentially forever, leaving in their trail behind them no dead ancestors, although some will die. And then he proposed that these animals collected together in the first multicellular organisms, but the cells remained um, with the full developmental potential to form, if broken off, new colonial organisms. So there was, this a con- it was a convenience for them to associate in this way. Then, in this subtle shift between these two species of volvox, which he's showing here in his book, he described that some of these cells specialized to form a shell. And so this is a different species of volvox, where some of these cells make a shell of about 2,000 cells, very subtle change in gene expression causing the difference. But these cells are destined to die. So they somehow shelter these cells inside and allow them to then break out and make a new colonial organism. These cells protect them but are sacrificed for the benefit of the cells inside. Weissman proposed this is the first dichotomy of bios and zoe. These cells will remain germline competent, as he called them, germay, uh, the word meaning to germinate, these cells being somatic cells or body cells. And, of course, what Weissman went on to describe was that the somatic cells, or these are original organisms, and he wasn't necessarily proposing that you and I evolved from that species of volvox, but something similar to that. That organism over the millennia, of course, the germline was uh, altered through selection mutations and other things to become a more and more complex organism, but having one characteristic in common with those original organisms, all of these cells are designed to be cast off every generation and are mortal cells. So Weissman described the immortality of the germline as he described it, and that's where the word comes from, immortality, and used in a cellular context, and the mortality of the somatic cell lineages And uh, in doing so, falling out of this was a very elegant theory of heredity. Darwin had a very clumsy model that somehow 
we recreate new life every generation by fighting entropy and sending little bits of genetic information from all the cells in our body to reassemble, fighting the forces of entropy to make a new cell capable of generating a new uh, individual. He called this pangenesis. Weissman said this much simpler idea is that there's an immortal lineage of cells that undergo, of course, a separation of DNA and a reassembling from mom and dad, but otherwise an immortal lineage of cells that just keep on proliferating just like the original cells did. And they're still doing that today. But what they do is they surround themselves with a sphere of cells, in our case a little more complex, having brain and ears and eyes, but just a much more highly evolved soma that is still being cast off every generation. So that's the modern version of this very ancient myth of the immortal renewal and the origins of mortality and immortality. Weissman made a prediction in, 18, in the 1800s, and uh, it's here. He said in his essay about aging, death takes place of humans because a worn-out tissue cannot forever renew itself. And because the capacity for increase by means of cell division is not everlasting, but finite in the soma, I would add. That prediction he made in the 1800s, he proposed that, that human somatic cells would someday be shown to have a finite capacity to divide. And so, in essence, what he was saying is the somatic cell lineages, because they did not share this replicative immortality of the germline or the reproductive lineage shown here in blue, they were deprived of it. Maybe the same way you've heard that these little animals that live in caves like crayfish that never see light, they become blind. In the same way he said, if you don't, if you aren't using a trait like immortality, you'll lose it. There was an, another interesting, though, consequence, which I've heard mentioned twice here tonight, the selfish gene concept. Way back in Weissman's era, people thought, wait a minute. Maybe a, an egg is not a chicken's way of making another chicken. Maybe we got the biology upside down. Maybe a chicken is an egg's way of making another egg. And we are just a, the fluff of a milkweed. The seed itself is the only thing that's important. We're just here to carry the DNA to the next generation, to do some fancy footwork in the dance floor to impress our, our sexual partner and, and re reproduce. Um, a lot of people thought that through. It wasn't just Richard Dawkins in the modern era that thought that through on a cell level. Uh, there were a lot of thoughtful people who debated these issues, hated them, hated the concept. Um, but the, the, you know, the, the, the biology was widely discussed uh, back in, Dar in the Darwinian era. Let's toss that aside. So food for thought. Anyway, so in the, about 25 years ago, um, I entered the field uh, interested in studying uh, this biology, the 
uh, aging of somatic cells. So if this, if this was human, here is the immortal germline. I'm not showing, uh, for reasons of simplicity, the, how this DNA is halved and mom and dad's DNA gets back together. I'm just showing as a single lineage of cells. Here are all the somatic cells that make up the body, you know, the, the, the blood, the nerves, the brain, the skin, the things that make our bodies, you and me, really, and how that is an immortal process going on forever. Now, in the 1960s, a scientist that lives not too far from here, actually, Leonard Hayfleck, lives up in Marin, uh, was studying the culture of human cells, cells from the lung, actually, and he was growing them in the dish. He was trying to do things with cultured cells and was flabbergasted uh, over the fact that after a certain number of doublings, the cells seemed to stop dividing. And this was against all dogma. No one up to the 1960s believed that Weissman was right. And uh, Hayflick finally wrote a paper in 1961 that became one of the landmark papers of modern science, really, showing that human somatic cells are mortal. They really do have a finite capacity to divide. And so young cells taken from a young tissue will proliferate, and then after a finite number of doublings, they stop dividing. We call that senescence or cellular aging. Um, cells can, however, rarely immortalize human cells, and they usually do it in the context of becoming cancer. But the fact that they could do it, for some people like myself, thought, it sounds like there's a mechanism, you know? that there really is a mechanism of immortality in the germline, it's somehow some genes or something, something, some machinery somewhere in the cell that can be, with a few tweaks here and there, mutations, whatever, can come back on. Anyway, this was the biology. Um, in the 1960s it began, and people like myself entered the field to study these cells, to study cells and to grow them to old age in the dish and to try to, you know, figure out what caused this, what makes cells from the body, skin cells, blood vessel cells, whatever, make, what it makes them grow old. In the late 1980s, I stumbled across this paper. A scientist named Howard Cook in Scotland was studying some DNA at the end of our chromosomes. You know, our chromosomes are linear strands of DNA. And he had a way to measure the length of the very ends of the chromosomes. And when he looked at them, he summarized the data in this diagram. And this is actually from human, humans in tissues as humans age. And he showed that somatic cells were losing the DNA from the ends of the chromosomes as we age in chronological years. But the reproductive cells weren't losing that DNA. What I immediately clicked in my mind, and probably clicked very easily in your mind, because I just laid out this dichotomy of the germline and the soma, uh, 
but it immediately clicked in my mind is this is the kind of dichotomy we're looking for, number one, but number two, there was a theory out there. There was this wild theory by a Russian man named Alovnikov. No one took it too seriously because Alovnikov had simply gone to a lecture in Moscow, had heard a lecture about how Leonard Hayfleck in the United States had discovered that human somatic cells were mortal. They had a finite capacity to divide. Alovnikov walked home alone, walked to the train station, watched the people get on the train in Moscow, and had a flash of insight. He said, I know how it works, with no data other than human somatic cells were mortal. You know, it's sort of like the calculating prodigies. How in the world? No, so it was such a leap that people didn't take it too seriously, although Sam Goldstein, the man I mentioned, who's my mentor and, and myself and some others, kept that in the back of our minds. It was a very intriguing hypothesis. The hypothesis was that he laid out in, in Russian, so we know we know that he was the first to think this up. It's a little bit of a debate because a year later Jim Watson wrote down a very similar theory, but Alovnikov beat him by a year. If these are the chromosomes, what Alovnikov proposed was there was a special kind of DNA at the ends of the chromosomes. We not, we, we've called for years the telomere. This means end part of the chromosome. And that we've lit, we've lit them up here so you can see them. These are human chromosomes with human telomeres. Alovnikov proposed that every time a cell divides in the body, somatic cells, a problem occurs. Watson called it the end replication problem. So as the double helix is separated and new strands are made, as Watson had pointed out a year later, you know, we don't know how this little end here is replicated. There's no known molecular machinery to replicate it. Uh, what, what Alovnikov had proposed was somatic cells, our body cells, can't replicate it. So every time a cell divides, it loses a little bit of DNA. So it's like a burning fuse. That's a clock, too. Or, you know, a clock, a clocking mechanism. But that in the immortal cells, like the germline, there was a special enzyme that could spin and make this DNA and that is an immortalizing enzyme, an immortalizing gene. And that was Alovnikov's hypothesis and that diagram I showed you with the, that uh, Howard Cook showed us that actually these telomeres were shortening in somatic cells plus a lot more data I'm not telling you about caused me to go off wildly and come to California and I found a venture firm here called Kleiner Perkins, Caulfield and Byers who believed this wild idea. $40 million later we had the gene and we got to test it. And what we showed in the uh, late 1990s was that uh, indeed when cells immortalized they were turning on an enzyme called telomerase which was a germline enzyme a gene that was absolutely silenced in most body cells it reemerges here it was always on in the germline 
And the big test was when we finally had the gene, 40 million dollars later, we put the gene back into human somatic cells that normally age, and it worked. The cells stopped aging. What's really exciting in the years since then is that some of these diseases that Sam Goldstein and other aging researchers have studied for years, these premature aging syndromes, one is called Werner syndrome, it's where people grow old when they're 30 or 40, we now, I think, can be convinced, at least I'm convinced, that that disease teaches us that the telomere is indeed a very, very important part of why we age. So the concept would be, uh, could we take telomerase from the germline and somehow put it back in the soma? Could we telomerize ourselves? Could we, you know, immortalize all of our cells or rejuvenate them using telomerase? The problem, as you know, or maybe no, uh, it's not easy to get genes turned on in our body or to do gene therapy. So I began thinking about how we could use this biology to actually impart this magical, uh, in a sense, magical immortality of the germline and somehow use this information to, uh, to help with the biology of aging. And I went back to this diagram. You know, I thought, if we got a stem cell, a cell with the potential to branch out and make other kinds of cells, we could telomerize that. Well, we want a powerful stem cell, one that could make a lot of things. What if we went back and got the mother of all stem cells? If you go backward in this branching tree of cells, you go all the way back here, there's a cell in the mouse that had been grown in the, in the dish and captured in the dish called an embryonic stem cell. That cell could become everything in the body. We could telomerize that, and then we could make young cells of any kind. And then I had a thought. What if that cell is absolutely primordial? All the way back at the beginning of the branching tree, the mother of all stem cells, it then wouldn't know yet whether it was going to become a sperm and egg and continue the immortal legacy or whether it was going to become a mortal cell and die with that generation for the first time in billions of years it might still have telomerase on. Maybe we would, we would not need telomerase. Maybe it would be the immortal cell, the first ever human immortal cell, ever naturally immortal, uh, until it became, uh, until it differentiated. And that was the, the genesis of the project to get uh, human embryonic stem cells, which we began back uh, 10 years ago now. And so the concept would be if we could capture some cells from the immortal human germline, we could make any kind of cell, all those cells would be born young in the same way babies are born young. Well, the, the project began when I met with Roger Peterson here at UCSF. Roger was making these. These are called blastocysts. These are the cluster of cells that result after the fertilization of an egg cell by a sperm cell. And as many of you know, in in vitro fertilization, which Roger did at UCSF, 
you fertilize an egg with a sperm, you allow these cells to grow for a few cell divisions, and you get a cluster of cells. These cells are cells that will become a placenta if this cluster of cells attaches to a uterus and starts a pregnancy. This is called the inner cell mass. And what we believed that we, is that we needed these blastocysts we could take this inner cell mass and then if we could culture it in the dish and keep it in a primordial state, block it from starting to differentiate, we might be able to get an embryonic stem cell line, cells that we could expand in number without them becoming body cells and then later turn them into body cells. Um, in 1998, um, actually it wasn't Roger's lab, it was a collaboration uh, with uh, Jamie Thompson in Wisconsin, the first human embryonic stem cells were published. This is one of those cell lines. This is H9. Um, this is a, an island of about a thousand cells uh, growing on top of contaminated mouse cells, as many of you have heard. But I was, I was entertaining in my mind uh, dissolving this image and showing the presidential seal of the United States. These are one of these are one of what we call the presidential lines. These are one of the lines that were made before August 9th, 2001, that President Bush said, you can do federal funding on these cells. You can't do federal funding with the cells that are not contaminated with mouse retroviruses. But what is well known about these cells is that they can, that this is an upside down tree, they can branch out into everything in the human body. And that is wonderful. Uh, there is no cell like that in the adult human. We talk about adult stem cells. There are adult stem cells. There are cells out here in the peripheral branches, uh, blood-forming cells and so on, that can become, they're technically stem cells that can branch out. But there is, these cells are an evanescent cell. They exist in the, from about day 6 to about day 14 before development begins and then they're gone, we think. And so these are very unique cells capable of making everything in the human body. Maybe the most striking demonstration of their potential is they can not only make any kind of cell, they can actually assemble themselves into tissue, which adults themselves don't. Here's intestine that we made in the laboratory, and you can see this red halo around that cross-section of intestine, that's muscle that contracts intestine. And these cells did all this on their own. Here's a developing hair follicle that gets a lot of us interested. <laughs> this, is a this is a developing eye, a retina, we think. Um, just really remarkable cells. I mean, looking at it just objectively, aside from all the political debate, I mean, just really remarkable cells. We published a paper a few weeks ago showing we could successfully make the cells of the human retina from these cells. These are the retinal pigment epithelium. You can see them turning dark here. These are the, the highly pigmented cells in the back of the retina. You know, the retina is like a camera. It's very black on the inside to prevent light from bouncing around. And these are those cells. We believe these cells could be useful in the treatment of macular degeneration, which is one of the leading causes of blindness in the elderly. All of us are getting it to some extent. Here is actually, we believe, regenerating rods and cones. 
So, you know, very promising for people who've lost vision. Uh, they make, uh, embryonic stem cells make neurons and make neurons that form the synapses, the electrical connections uh, that we need to restore many kinds of nervous, CNS nervous function. And of course you've heard Nancy Reagan hoping that someday the power of embryonic stem cells to regenerate the complex architecture of the brain might be able to help in such devastating diseases as Alzheimer's disease. What we have been able to show is that we could make the dopaminergic neurons for Parkinson's disease. And that is why people like Michael Fox has joined in as a voice saying, uh, this is a very important unsolved medical problem and the ability to make these cells at very early points of development uh, holds great promise for that particular age-related disease. These cells, though, as I mentioned, are immortal, uh, but, and this is a, uh, what we call an assay for immortality, this ladder going off into heaven is the presence of telomerase. The minute these, well not the minute, but within a week of these cells starting to develop into somatic lineages, this immortalizing gene turns off and is silenced. Isn't that interesting? So there's some truth to this idea. We start aging in the womb. Uh, this would actually suggest we start aging in the first few weeks. <clears throat> in the time of Weissman, William Osler, the famous physician at Johns Hopkins, gave a lecture at Harvard called Science and Immortality, and he's talking about the germline, and it really fits in many respects these cells. I'm going to actually read this quote. He says, speaking of Weissman's germline cells, this marvelous embryonic substance is eternally young, eternally productive, eternally forming new individuals to grow up and to perish, while it remains in the progeny, always youthful, always increasing, always the same. Thousands upon thousands of generations which have arisen in the course of ages were its products, but it lives on in the youngest generations with the power of giving origin to coming millions. The individual organism is transient, but its embryonic substance, which produces the mortal tissues, preserves itself imperishable, everlasting, and constant. Isn't that brilliant? The constant part is wrong. It's a thing called evolution. But the general principle here is, is quite valid. And let me put it this way, um, taking the long view. Perhaps one of the reasons we struggle with the absurdity and the horror of our personal mortality and the idea that we personally will personally will face this uh, face death is that we were created from immortal cells. Uh, the cells that made us were in our parents before us were happily metabolizing in World War II and World War One, the Civil War, and our grandparents and our their parents before them in the time of Neanderthal, a hundred thousand years before that, in the time of the dinosaurs. This lineage of cells 
that has been successfully repairing the ravages of entropy, wear and tear, free radicals, cosmic rays, successfully, brushing them aside, repairing the damage going on. For the first time since the origin of life on earth, they're going to die in you and me. Maybe that's in part why uh, we find this so tragic. The, I guess the point is, from a gerontologist's viewpoint, why then, it, why if the germline has this capacity to repair itself, why is it that the body does age? And what is the origins of human mortality on a molecular level and so on? I've hinted that we believe a significant part of the biology is the biology of the telomere. What I've also implied is, is in our, it is our belief that perhaps one of the reasons that we age is a uh, mechanism to prevent us from getting cancer. And maybe that's why telomerase reemerges when we do get malignancy. So if, we were all in, if all of our cells were immortal, we probably would live a couple of years and die of cancer, is one of the theories. Now, in 1997, Dolly was cloned. So I was running this project to try to get human embryonic stem cells, and I recognized that if we got them, we'll have a wonderful cell, but it'll be rejected by the human body. It'll fly in the ointment. And um, what Dolly, of course, was, the experiment that Keith Campbell performed the experiments and thought this whole thing up with Dolly, uh, was was to take, rather than the germline, to create a, an organism, mixing the DNA of mom and dad, he said, uh, what would happen if we took a somatic cell and plunked it back into the germline? Would the egg cell, if we took an egg cell, removed its DNA, put in a somatic cell, would it be able to take that cell, in a sense, back in time, and then if we took that little embryo and put it into a uterus, would it make a clone? And as you know, he shocked the scientific world by showing that it actually worked. No one thought it would work. It's biology run in reverse. Why would, a, why would a cell be capable, after it's gone through all these profound molecular changes to differentiate into a skin cell, why would we ever think that we could reverse that biology? It's like a car designed just to have forward gears suddenly you just say, oh, by the way, you stomp the floor three times and it goes in reverse. And it was never designed to do that. That'd be bizarre, wouldn't it? Well, that's like this. Why would biology run in reverse by using nuclear transfer? It's bizarre. Well, is, that's interesting, of course. And a lot of people thought, you know, we can now clone all the famous racehorses in history and have them compete against each other. You know, they started thinking of all these fun projects we could do using cloning. And... Um, what, as a cell biologist, thinking about the biology of aging and the biology of mortal and immortal cells, what I asked myself was, geez, what if we could take a human somatic cell and do this, but not make a clone, I would argue. What if we did this? My little animation would show what I have in mind. Take a human somatic cell and put it back into an egg cell, uh, but just to take it back in time and then make a lineage of cells that the patient needed, not an entire organism. Just follow one lineage. But 
use nuclear transfer as the vehicle, a time machine to take that cell back in developmental time uh, to make embryonic stem cells for you and me and then make whatever we needed. That idea we called therapeutic cloning. We knew that was a bad term, but we didn't know what else to call it. And um, that, that was the origins of the distinction we tried to make between ther reproductive cloning, which is cloning a person or an animal, and therapeutic cloning, which would be using just cells to make, utilize this procedure as a cellular time machine, a way of taking a cell back to an embryonic state. Here's how it works. So here's an egg cell. I'm going to turn on the ultraviolet light, and here is the chromosomes, and there's actually the chromosomes that were ejected uh, waiting sperm. So, let me back it up again. so here is the chromosomes that remain inside the egg cell, and uh, we take a little glass pipette, pierce the zona here, and remove them. So now we have an egg cell with no blueprint, okay, no genetic blueprint. We take a somatic cell, a mortal somatic cell, floating in the dish here. This is a skin cell. And take it up in that same little pipette, refocus the microscope, and place that cell with, within this rubbery shell of the egg cell. Kind of push the membranes side by side so they're in contact. And then we put them in a little electrical chamber and give them a little electric shock, and that fuses the cells together. That's how that works the best. It's not like Frankenstein, to bring them to life. <laughs> they're alive. They're living cells. It's to electrically fuse the cells together. One, one more myth you have to debunk. Then, then all of this magic occurs uh, by the egg cell. Uh, you know, cloning biologists must look awful smart to be able to do this biology in reverse. It's the egg cell. It's, we have no idea, well, we have ideas, but the, the egg cell is doing all of this wonderful thing. So you put in uh, a skin cell's DNA, and the egg cell somehow, somewhere in this egg cell is molecular machinery that can take that DNA and do to it what you do with a computer disk, you know, when you say initialize. It just wipes out all of its programming and resets it all the way back at the beginning of life. Isn't that wonderful? And so that blueprint then is scrubbed clean, reprogrammed, and this cell begins development as an embryo, just as it would have if it was sperm and egg. If you put it into a uterus, you get clones. These are all cloned cattle. Another aspect, by the way, those of you who know some cell biology, is all of the, the batteries of the cell, the mitochondria, which undergo some changes with aging, come from the egg cell as well. So you have new batteries in these cells that are made through cloning. But does it reverse the aging of a cell? You've heard that it doesn't, that Dolly was born old. And when Dolly, uh, there was a study done on Dolly's telomeres, and my old friend Jerry Shea, when he heard about these results, he said, I recall when the news came out that some, that's supposed to be somebody, said that Dolly was a sheep in lamb's clothing. In other words, she was born old. I think that's an appropriate quote now. The early thought was, because cloning takes a cell that's somatic, that started to age, and you put it back into an egg cell, it reverses the developmental clock, 
but not the clock of aging. So you're born old. And Dolly was born old. And that's a very common belief. It's wrong. Absolutely wrong. It's a myth. It's based on real science. It was published in Nature in 1999. It's just that this paper was wrong. Um, we did the first definitive study on this, looking at telomeres in the context of cloning and aging in cattle, not sheep. And so we took young cells, grew them to old age, measured their telomeres, and showed that when you took an old cell and put it back into an egg cell, telomerase, it's present in the germline, was there, activated, and rebuilt the telomere back to the beginning of life. Two miracles on top of one another, that cloning could reverse the biological clock of development, but also rebuild the this telomere clock of aging. Uh, as remarkable as it sounds, it works. At least it works in cattle. The Roslin Institute later published another paper showing that it did indeed work that way in sheep. It's been shown also... Um, so this is actually the way we presented some of this data. Here's uh, cow cells growing to old age. We took these cells used them in cloning and showed that the clock of aging got reset actually longer than it was originally. It was an interesting phenomenon that this clock, the way, if you put an old cell back into the germline, it actually overshoots and resets the developmental clock, uh, making the animal younger than young. Um, shortly after our paper, Teru Wakayama that cloned the first mouse, shown here, called Cumulina, he cloned the clone, and then he cloned the clones of the clone. And he showed that telomeres did the same thing in mice that they did in cattle. They get longer, not shorter. Uh, nuclear transfer really does function as a cellular time machine, resetting the clock of aging in cells. Of course, it hasn't yet been proven in humans. But it works in uh, mice, pigs, rabbits, cows, sheep. These animals were all cloned from senescent cells, cells that were at the end of their lifespan, and these animals moo. And as you can see, the cells must have divided because there's now trillions of cells here. So what we have is a way of making an old cell go back in time, rebuilding its telomeres, but also taking it back to an embryonic state, making regenerated cells possible of any kind for the human body. Can you see where we're going? This is an enabling technology. This is a portal technology. This is going to make a lot of things never thought possible before possible. In the human cell therapy area, we could imagine taking a patient cell back in time by nuclear transfer, making young embryonic cells, turning them into whatever the patient needed, but there'd be young cells histocompatible with the patient, any kind of cell. Animal studies suggest this really does work. This is an animal called Chance that was, uh, after, years after it had died, some of its cells were saved, uh, found. Uh, this animal died as a geriatric animal, a very old animal, and it was cloned. It was a pet, actually. Here's the family with its clone. They aptly named it Second Chance. It's not a joke. It's true. What's interesting was this animal was very old in cow years, 22 years of age, Second chance is young and is healthy and is doing well. And um, 
this is sort of a proof of principle that you can take an old cell and make very young cells. Of course, we would never clone a young person, but it, uh, it's a demonstration that this really does work. We published the first efforts to do this in humans, the first cloned human embryos shown here in 2001. And the, our dream was, of course, is to make uh, beating heart muscle tissue, other kinds of cells, neurons, uh, blood cells, for instance, by taking a patient cell back in time, regenerating the cell lifespan. You know, this whole platform I'm showing you here is called regenerative medicine. And that's why the California Stem Cell Initiatives Institute is called, I think, the Institute of Regenerative Medicine. This new technology platform, uh, you know, we're very hopeful that it could have marvelous new ways of intervening in age-related disease, but not just that, of course. Any disease, it's degenerative in nature, like diabetes, where you lose the cells of the pancreas and it causes you to need insulin, even if you're a child. Uh, this technology could potentially help re uh, restore organ function and, and a host of diseases. My interest as a gerontologist would be, could we do the profound? Could we raid the immortality of the germline in a profound way to give young cells to old people? Here is the telomere shortening of blood cells. People, these are centenarians. You can see their telomeres are clustered. Well, you wouldn't know because the numbers are missing, but right about the Hayflick limit, we have a genetic brick wall in our body, you know, our cells are mortal. Could we give old people, even 100-year-old people, back the blood-forming cells, for instance, that they were born with? So could we take an old patient with old blood cells, do nuclear transfer, and make young, restore the immune system, for instance, of an old person using nuclear transfer? Let me show you a little video. It's the first experiment to test this in an animal. The video, the theory behind it is there's a primitive cell called the hemangioblast, a cell that can become blood, all of the blood cells, but also, and this is really exciting to me, can also go through the blood and reline our vascular tree with young vascular cells called endothelial cells. It's an old saying that you're as old as your arteries. Many of you know the number one cause of death is coronary disease. These cells potentially could rebuild our immune system with young cells if we made them using regenerative medicine, the techniques I just described to you, taking a patient cell back in time, making embryonic stem cells, making these cells, putting them into the blood, and then making a new young immune system and maybe even young vascular tree. Uh, MSNBC somehow found out that experiments we were doing in animals using old cows to test this and, uh, and uh, televised it, uh, to my amazement. There we go. Millions of Americans suffer from diseases like these, diseases that involve a faulty immune system. What if therapeutic cloning could fully restore not just organs, but a defective immune system? That's the goal of an ambitious experiment that begins in Pennsylvania. This cow is about 12 years old, no spring chicken. 
Researchers will try to replace her aging immune system with a peppy, rejuvenated system. Skin cells from the old cow are shipped to advanced cell technology in Massachusetts. The old cow is cloned and the resulting embryo is rushed back to Pennsylvania. The embryo is implanted in a surrogate mother, then removed and flown by charter plane to New York. The tissues are rushed to the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. While the pilot stands by, immune system cells are extracted from the clone. Back in Pennsylvania, these cells are transfused into the old cow. A perfect genetic match from a clone, these cells shouldn't be rejected. Transfused cells travel through blood vessels. They should find their way into the old cow's bones. There, the immune cells should settle into the marrow, the core of the immune system. If it works, the marrow will soon start cranking out new white blood cells the workhorses of the immune system. The Pennsylvania team takes regular blood samples from the old cow, which are shipped to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Here, the blood is analyzed. Are there fresh white blood cells? Peter Wettstein, an expert on the immune system, is about to see the results for the first time. He wants to know if the old cow's white blood cells are on the rise. The figures look good, but have the new white blood cells really come from the transfused cells? Ten days later, good news arrives at advanced cell technology. We just got some new information that suggests that the new immune cells that we place into the old cows have definitely taken up home and appear to be producing white blood cells. And the stator is preliminary, but it looks very encouraging. There's an old myth about... There is promising data. It's in press. It should be out soon. Uh, there's an old myth about King Isan and Medea, the sorceress, who slits his neck and makes a witch's brew of young blood to give him back young blood. And uh, uh, I think this is going to be uh, possible. We're, we're excited that in these animal studies is that the cells did become part of the vascular tree of the animal as well. So... The idea would be that we could uh, put these cells back in the circulation and, and, and they could potentially go back to help mend the age-related changes in the vascular tree, such as in atherosclerosis, maybe even be used to target cancer. Here you can see some of these genetically engineered cells in the bone marrow relining vascular uh, blood vessels with uh, blue or marked uh, cells so we can see them. We published a paper, gosh, I don't know, a few months ago now, where we could inject these hemangioblasts into heart muscle that had been uh, hit with a heart attack. So this is scar tissue, and we're pleased to see that these marked, again, these blue cells regenerating the myocardial wall with new heart muscle, which normally does not happen, as you know, after a heart attack. So there's a lot of promise, clearly. The debate, though, is that these cells are so tutipotent that they're capable of making a human being, that they are a human being. 
Of course, a lot of people should don't know, and a lot of the, I think, public reaction against this is the concept that these are little babies. Of course, this is the point of a pin, not the head of a pin. And this is the size of the cluster of cells we're talking about. Size isn't everything, but it's part of the story. The real, I think, definitive reason why these are cells, not people, is a much more complex thing. And I'm not going to get into developmental biology 101 here tonight. But for those of you who are interested in studying this, these clusters of cells we call blastocysts are shown on this level. We know, this is from a textbook in embryology, uh, we know that the origins of twinning, identical twins, come from the splitting of an embryo. So uh, non-identical twins are separately fertilized eggs that make separate blastocysts that separately attach in the uterus. And we can tell that because, of course, they're not genetically identical and they have separate membranes. But depending on how the membranes lie in these, in the case of identical twins, we know for a fact, I mean, this isn't a matter of debate, that the, a single fertilized egg can split in a few days or a week or up to two weeks after fertilization leading to identical twins. Or two embryos can stick together leading to a human being that's a mixture of two genetic backgrounds called a chimera. And what this biology teaches us is, is that human development itself and what we call biologically individuation the commitment of these cells that they're going to make a person or two persons or a part of a person or maybe not attached to the uterus and not make anything. That decision point is about two weeks after fertilization and that's why in part I feel comfortable that if we drew a line as a society and said prior to 14 days these are unformed cells if they haven't individualized even, and there's no body cells of any kind in these things, none. You know, how could it be a person if there's no body cell there at all? One can make that argument, but if, it hasn't, if this entity hasn't individualized, why would we ascribe it the status of a person if it's not even an individual yet? And that is the, the ethical justification of why I and others have argued that therapeutic cloning that sets a strict standard as we have in California of even more conservative, uh, I think it's what, 12 days here in California under the new stem cell initiative. What we do with unformed cells is not a, um, it's not a baby. It's not an abortion debate at all. That's the ethical argument. In any event, we're not talking about making genetically engineered people. We're talking about making genetically engineered somatic cells and using them for treating the problems of the biology of aging which brings us back to the beginning and uh, when I was in New York I saw this and I'm a gerontologist and I took a double take and I could have swore that said I'm aging <laughs> closer no, it says imagine and I'd invite all of you with me to imagine what kind of a world we could create Going back to the primeval myths that unite us all as mankind, you know, they, as I point out in the beginning of tonight's talk, they really were trying, like Isis, to, out of love for a fellow human being, her love for Osiris, to reach into nature and find a way of extracting from uh, the immortal renewal of life a waste of helping uh, those that we care for. 
Thank you very much. Keep those questions coming. Kevin will help sort them out and we'll ask a few. Um, a couple starting basically on the telomeres question here, Mike. Uh, Emily Kay, you here? Raise your hand. Right over there she is. Uh, says, what then, if not telomeres, was the origin of Dolly's apparent advanced age? She didn't have advanced age. She uh, died of, um, of a virus that the other animals in her barn had, and they were not clones. It's a common respiratory virus that leads to a cancer in the respiratory tree, and the pathology reports showed that. So it was unrelated to her to any aging process. There was, I, I don't know pathology that suggests she had a premature aging. What you may have heard, she had arthritis, but uh, everybody believes that that was in her hind leg was due to the fact she was such a celebrity. Every day there were photographers in there, and the way you get her to the edge of the cage is you feed her. So she was overweight and on her back legs all day long on the fence, and she got premature arthritis in her hips. But uh, if it was related to cloning, there's no evidence to suggest that it was related to cloning, or any, there was no evidence of any premature aging in Dolly. Uh, further telomere question from Stacy. Where are you? Stacy? Somewhere out there. Earlier, you had mentioned a theory that uh, telomerase, telomerase is turned off in somatic cells to work against cancer. The clones are turning out to have longer telomeres. Does this make the clones more likely to have cancer? Apparently not, but um, I mean, they're, they're telomerase negative animals. The telomere length gets reset oftentimes, although not always, longer than animals would normally have, um, but they're still mortal animals. And um, of course, the theory I'm, I was laying out tonight of regenerative medicine is we could reset the clock of aging in any of your cells back to the same cells you were born from, but we wouldn't lead, leave telomerase on, I would argue. We would just use this biology to, the immortality of the germline to rewind the clock of aging, uh, but give you back young mortal cells. And um, so, but there is no, I would say there is no uh, evidence of, of uh, increased risk of cancer in clones. Not, to, not that I'm aware of. Cloned animals. Yeah, here's a question from Josh. And I think this is probably building kind of on the rejuvenating blood concept and, and injecting things with, with uh, marvelous elixirs. Is there any reason to think that people couldn't simply be inoculated against aging by getting periodic injections of progressively more and more telomerized embryonic stem cells beginning at birth or before? What happens to embryonic stem cells when simply injected into the blood of the, of the donor, of the host? Well, we don't really know. Uh, but uh, I, I think there's real skepticism. If you just threw these embryonic stem cells into our blood, there's real skepticism that they would know where to go and how to, to repair tissues. So normally if you inject embryonic stem cells into a, a body of an animal, they, they start developing in, in a chaotic form. It's, it's disturbing, really. Uh, you, you see a mass of hair and teeth and skin stuff, not a, a developing human, just a mass of tissues all mixed up, and uh, they're very confused. So the idea is that we, we lead them down towards some develop, 
part of the developmental tree so that they know, oh, I'm becoming liver or I'm becoming this or that, and then inject them in that form. Okay, here's another question uh, from Anonymous. You said that sequential cloning of an animal line leads to progressible, progressive lengthening of the, the, the telomere. Do these animals with lengthened telomeres live longer than uh, the wild type? That's a very good question. Um, I, the, the, the data would suggest that they very well may. Uh, the animals that we did this work with were uh, um, are still alive, and, but as you know, the problem is they live a long time, so we just don't know the answer yet. But it's a very interesting question. I don't know. Yeah. Are you guys working on that, or is someone? We're, the animals uh, likely will be uh, well taken care of. Uh, they're no longer in our hands, but the, the, the group that owns them likely is going to keep them around, and we plan on studying their uh, aging and comparing them to other animals. Some preliminary data that we did early on suggested that they were aging more slowly uh, with the longer telomeres, but it's very preliminary. Do natural offspring of those creatures have lengthened telomeres, I wonder? Uh, we don't know, to my knowledge. Uh, probably not, because the germline is its own thing. Yeah, I would say. We don't know. Here's don't a know. question from A, looks like A. Gagwin. Where are you? Way in the back, waving his hand in the corner. Uh, you say that you will not implant clonal embryos into a human womb. Why not? Well, I, um, I just don't know that it would be safe, and I don't know why. You know, it reminds me, the mental image I have is, uh, you know, a, a, a new rocket and uh, untested women and children aboard. Let's go. You know, why would you put either a woman carrying a pregnancy like that or the pregnancy itself at risk not knowing? Uh, we simply don't know. Uh, the concept that cloned animals are all abnormal and have five legs and all these things is myth. Um, it's true that clone, some many types of cloned animals, mice, have some problems for sure. There's a lot of obesity and a lot of cloned mice strains. Uh, but cloned cattle are virtually normal by all criteria that we know of. With the exception, they have abnormal placentas oftentimes, which can lead to sec secondary problems. Uh, we don't. We have reasons to think human clones might not have that particular problem. There's a lot of IVF children, and uh, for the most part, they're normal. So there, there's, there's, there is, you know, data to suggest clone human beings should maybe, maybe be okay. But my point is, these are human beings, and why would you put mother or child at risk? And so I just, I just think it's just a very bad idea. Let me ask a. Um kind of political question at this point, which I'll ask. Um, okay, we got Proposition 71 passed here, and what is it, $300 billion or something coming in the direction of your kind of science. How do you think that will play out? Um, does it make California the frontier of this kind of research, or are we just catching up with South Korea and China? Uh, what's the actual pace of, of the science and the biomedicine likely to be? Uh, how does it play off against uh, a, f a federal government, an administration which is hostile to this kind of research? 
Well, uh, I guess I don't have to tell many of you. President Bush is uh, adamantly against what I'm talk I talked about tonight. Uh, his ethics advisor, Leon Cass, is fixated on this. He feels it's morally reprehensible. Um, the uh, Weekly Standard, uh, Bill Crystal wrote an article, Dr. Weston, Mr. Bin Laden, cloning and terrorism are both a clear and present danger to the United States, was the subtitle. Um, very differences of opinion, great differences of opinion. Uh, President Bush is trying right now, ironically, to use the United Nations to, as a way of banning uh, the medical uses of cloning worldwide in a, in a worldwide treaty through the United Nations. Isn't that interesting? Um, and he may succeed. We don't know. Uh, he's got very strong support uh, in the world community in the Catholic countries. He's worked very hard on this. Um, all I can say is um, I deeply appreciate uh, those of you who voted for this proposition. Um, I, I think the speaking for on behalf of the medical research community, we are deeply grateful. Uh, I, I think these funds will be spent the best way we know how uh, to bring about this vision of this new technology. Uh, I think it's a uh, historic thing. You know, the president, during the election you heard... Uh, uh, the first lady say, oh, my husband was the first president to authorize funding for stem cell research. Why are you saying he's against this? Of course, she didn't point out he also was the first to ban it. And he allowed it to go forward under these very strict guidelines with contaminated cells and so on. And also didn't point out that the funding is trivial, a few million dollars a year that he's allowed to go through the NIH. California is saying... 300 million every year for California alone. Uh, it's, it will have dramatic implications. I'm very hopeful. Uh, I think it was uh, a real vote of confidence to the medical research community, and I, I, I think we're just, uh, uh, I'm, I'm awed by it. I'm, I'm just very grateful. But, uh, will great things happen? We fooled you. And these cells aren't even real, and you guys threw all this money at this field. No. Uh, <laughs> bad joke. Um, we're, we're very excited. And um, I think other than isolating the cells initially, uh, th th I've never been more excited in my life than seeing this proposition pass. Uh, you know, in our lifetime, we'll see the fruits of this, I believe. I think it's clearly... Um, here's one from Randy Hayes. Where are you, Randy? Where? Somewhere out there. He says, I'm 63 and not a venture capitalist. What's in it for me? What's in it for you? <laughs> What's in it for you? I gave a, they, I, I, I talked about how the early days in, in Geron and I, I was trying to get venture capitalists to help fund this quest for the immortality gene, and I gave a talk at this famous biotech conference here in Redwood Shores, uh, the Ernst & Young conference, and I gave this talk on the biology of aging and the questions, and there's this long silence, and there's a voice way in the back of the room, and someone said, hurry up. Um, you know, I, yeah, obviously there's a lot at stake for all of us. We're all going to face, if we live long enough, uh, age-related degenerative diseases, and so uh, obviously this hits home for all of us. Um, maybe not financially if you're a venture capitalist, but uh, 
Uh, that's, that's really where my my focus has been. Really, is more on the human human side. What this is from Andrew. Andrew here. Where's Andrew? Somewhere out there. What is the theoretical life expectancy of a human if therapeutic can be used as you hope? No, oh, we don't know. I, I, you know. I'm teasing you, obviously, by saying that the germline is capable of reju- making new individuals generation after generation. And I, we believe if you cloned second chance and made third chance and fourth chance and fifth chance, just like the normal reproductive cycle, this infinity sign applies. We can keep making new chances and forever. Which means, I would think, as far as we know, I can keep making, for instance, a new young immune system of yours forever when Stuart's clock is finally ticking its last ticks. I can still be making Stuart's brand new young baby immune cells. He might not be here to receive them. That's the big question mark. Can we find ways of rebuilding the whole human body and use this power of the immortal renewal of life to keep it renewing his life or our lives. See, that's, that's engineering. And, um, you know, and we just, it's dependent on people and brains and money and all these kinds of things. So, but I, I know that we know the biology is real. How it will be finally actualized in the lives of you and me is unknown and difficult to predict. I, I, I wouldn't even want to begin to try. Okay, one final question. Somewhat inspired by you, I think, Peter Schwartz from Global Business Network, put a bet on the longbets.org website that long now runs. It's a $1,000 bet, and he got a taker. The bet reads basically as follows. Uh, This was done in, I think, 2003. No, 2001. And he bet that in 2151, 150 years out, there would be a human alive at that time who is alive now. Would you take that bet? You know, a, a gerontologist turns pale with questions like that. And because the, the, it, it's verboten, there's a rule. Gerontologists don't ever make such predictions. I'm that one guy stupid enough to get my head cut off. My old, my old colleague Sam Goldstein was as well. I remember before he died, he was interviewed by magazines, and he said, I think we'll see people live to be 150 years, 160 years old, and the lifetime of many of us now living. You know, so I'm not saying me, I'm saying my, my mentor, who's no longer with us. Um, but of course, if we live to be 150, the technology is uh, uh, 100 years from now, for many of us that are 50, are going to be vastly superior. So why couldn't we go another 150 and so on? So um, I am dodging the question because I don't know. And I, I like staying with things I know or feel I know. You know, I, I believe that it, it, his prediction, his friend's prediction is possible, but it's dependent on, you know, right now these, this field I'm talking about uh, has a whopping total of maybe a dozen people working on it. Um, it's really dependent on effort and how much human effort was put into it. If we put the same amount of human effort into, um, you know, 3,000 people die every day of degenerative disease in the United States. 
the same number of people that died in the World Trade Center on September 11th. But they die every day. If we put, I was just going to say, if we put the amount of effort into regenerative medicine that we spend in a day, you know, bombing people in other countries, um, we could make a real difference. Uh, but it's entirely dependent on the effort. You know, we can't. And uh, the, the, again, I'm coming back. The California Stem Cell Initiative will make a major impact. That is a massive commitment of resources that was made uh, on Election Day. So uh, um, I'm, I'm hopeful, but I'm, please don't ask me to make a prediction, especially when I'm being recorded. Well, I see your computer wants us to log out. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you very much, Michael West. Thank you. Good evening.